Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> Just gonna hum along. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you again by myself. Thanksgiving is over. The holidays are uh, well temporarily done. They'll be started back up again in a month's time. Um, but Kyle's not here. It's just me. So this is what you're getting. And something that I have been reluctant to do because it's really difficult. So uh, that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to begin with today. So I've brought up some people um, in the podcast before, philosophers, scientists, um, you know, important thinkers. One of the people that I've brought up many times is a guy named Hegel, H-E-G-E-L, Carl Friedrich Hegel. So a German philosopher, really important, uh, maybe one of the most important philosophers of all time, certainly one of my favorites, given what he chose to talk about and who his influences were. When we start talking about that, uh, you guys will probably notice that we've talked about some of these guys at length uh, on the podcast before. So there's definitely some overlap between Hegel's interests and mine. And he was the first, he was the first guy that I read uh, a book he wrote called Phenomenology of Spirit. And I'm literally talking about the first few pages of that book. And it was, it was totally mind-blowing to me. Totally mind-blowing. Um, but we'll have to do this delicately because because Hegel's not easy to read. And a lot of these guys are not easy to read. They're interesting but they're confusing, so I'll take it slow. I've removed a lot of the unnecessary words trying to make it a little easier to talk about, so we'll see how this goes. But this is my attempt. And I want to tell you guys, I have not I have not read all of uh, Hegel. I have not read all of Phenomenology of Spirit, and shame on me, but I'm going to. And so this is my attempt to not only bring it to you and talk about it and hopefully bring some interesting stuff to you, but it's also, my, it's also me forcing myself to, to actually read it and I'm learning right along with you. So this will be interesting. It's not it's not dissimilar from what we've done in the past. It's not dissimilar from what I did when I did the Jordan Peterson um, Maps of Meaning episodes. So this is going to be a teaching and a learning experience for me. Um, okay, so first thing I want to talk about is the book. Um, not, not Phenomenology of Spirit specifically. I'm talking about the physical object, the book that I, that I have. Um, it's old. It's not super old, but it's old enough to be awesome. So I have a little bit of a thing about old books. Um, I love them. 
I love the way they look. They don't make books like they used to. And I know that's cliche. They say that about lots of things, but it's the truth. You know, you, you go and you, you track down a 69 Chevelle, and then you tell me whether they make cars like that today. Um, the same thing's true with books, you know, the physical books. Um, this is probably probably a little bit of a psychological thing for me. I, I told you guys before that I've always really loved ancient history, and it's always had this crazy appeal to me that if I could only go back to the beginning, then I would know the truth. So the most ancient things have always held the most intrigue and mystery and magic for me. So the books I like, I like to have old books. You know, it's like they represent this old knowledge. They represent this hidden secret, you know, capsule of this of this knowledge. And it's not just any knowledge that I like. So old books are great. But if you look at the ones I have just for decoration hanging around, they're all about religion and philosophy. So it's a certain type of knowledge. And I, I just love it. It's just the, the old books are objects that represent just something mysterious to me about ancient times and and you know, hidden mysteries, you know, that that's the kind of thing that comes to my mind. And this book, um, I bought from half price books. I, I buy a lot of old books for half price. Uh, at least I used to in the old days, um, because you can find them there and they're not easy to find otherwise. And it's not like I'm talking about first editions, you know, uh, phenomenology of spirit was published in 1807. So the copy I have is from 1954, right? So it's not like first editions that were super valuable. They're not, but they're but they're beautiful. So I'm going to describe this book to you. So the book in my hands is a hard copy of uh, a compilation of, of Hegel's philosophy. So not just phenomenology of spirit. It's one of the Random House Modern Library uh, editions. If you've ever seen them, they're really pretty. They were designed to be affordable for regular people. Like back in the day when we all had encyclopedias in our house. Because if you didn't have it, then there was just information that you d didn't have at your fingertips. There was no internet it wasn't there. You had to have those books, you know. So it's a small hardback. Um, probably wasn't that expensive in its day, but it's really neat. It, it It's like a white and gray cover, and it looks like it's... It looks like a tweed suit. Like, my book is wearing a tweed suit, and I fucking love that, you know, anyway. Um, I love that idea. But it's also neat. It's uh, It's got... Black, a black label and then all of the lettering is embroidered in like gold. It's really cool looking. But that's not the end of it. I mean, you open this book up just like any of these old books around my podcast studio. I did this to my wife yesterday. I'm like, and I walk upstairs, I take this book, I shove it in her face. I'm like, put your nose in there. Just take a big deep breath. I'm going to do it right now. Oh, man. Um, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It's, it's uh, something that happens to paper or ink or both. I don't know. After a long enough time, it just smells good. Like, I, I don't know how to describe it to you. It smells like leather and paper and knowledge, you know. Uh, if I could make, I don't know if you could make it a cologne, but you could definitely make it like a um, like an incense stick or a candle or something. A candle, yes. Somebody get on that. Um, old book smelling candles. I will, I will place the first order. So I do love old books, and this is one that's been sitting around just criticizing me for not having read it, staring at me every day when I come down to my office. So I picked it up, started reading it, and um, before I can jump into it, I have to give you a little bit of background. 
Also, I want to I want I want to mention to you what we're going to be reading. Phenomenology of Spirit is Hegel's first work, and I wasn't sure when I started reading it if Hegel was a religious person or not. You know, I didn't know that background. Shame on me. And I'm like, I wonder if he knows that that he's coming off that way. And uh, because you'll see when we get into it, he's talking about self consciousness in this book, and that's what he means when he says spirit in in the title, phenomenology of spirit. It's it's consciousness is what he's talking about, and trying to understand what it is. And going back to 1807, you can imagine, you know, this is one of the earliest attempts to do it, at least in the modern world, and and it's interesting. Um, but when he starts talking, it, for me anyway, it. it it's difficult for me to distinguish him talking about self-consciousness and the way I talk about God. So I'm like, man, I wonder if Hegel knew that he was coming off that way. Then I open up the wiki and I'm doing my due diligence, right? I'm just just getting a little bit of basic background. And the first thing I notice is that Hegel graduated from uh, Tübingen Seminary in 1796. <laughs> so, so yeah, he knew, he knew. You know, Hegel was a philosopher, and in in a time when it wasn't as acceptable and popular to be um, a religious one, right? You had to be more of an atheist. This was the beginning of of science, really, and uh, and this guy graduated from seminary. So you know, he, he, that's where priests go to become priests. That's where reverends go to become reverends. You know, he he went to school and learned. Religion. So this was definitely an interest of Hegel's, and uh, I, I say that he graduated in 1796 just to bring up what I already did. He published Phenomenology of Spirit in 1806. So he, I mean, ten years after he graduated college, he published this first book, and it literally rocked the philosophical world. An earthquake under the feet of the certainty of all the philosophers that came before him, and. Let's get into it. I mean, um, Hegel's remembered for something something called the dialectic. Um, and it's actually something that gets wrapped up into the discussions of communism, and so it's, it, it gets muddy. But the way that my philosophy professor described this to me um, in college was something like this. He's like, there's, there's ideas that play out in the world and they play out through us in ways that we don't quite understand. We don't always seem to have control over. And so a question comes up in the American history at some point in time that says, is slavery okay? Is it moral? Is it right? Should it be allowed? Because it had been going on for a very long time. And the way that my philosophy professor in college would, would discuss it, he's like, so this was a dialectic. So this is a question. You're going to fall on one side or the other. Is slavery moral? Is it not? Should it be done? Should it not? And you could ask a person that question or a thousand people that question, but that's not how consensus works, and that's not how these things work. What happens is people act it out. They embody it, and they act out in reality the, the, the argument. And what that was for us was the Civil War. So all of the soldiers on both sides of that war and all of the generals and politicians and people involved they're all playing a role. They're embodying both sides of the question. And then they're going to fight it out to see which side is right. Isn't that weird? And if the South had won the war, 
then slavery would, been, would have been right, and that's the dialectic would have won, and we would have been moving in that direction and for who knows how long. Um, so, so it's interesting to, to think about that, to think about human beings physically fighting and dying and bleeding and, and suffering, to figure out which side of this argument is going to win out. So it's kind of hyperbolic, but you get the idea. There's something interesting about that, that the, the, the future of humanity and the direction of the world is going to be decided in that way, in this sort of dialectic way that has to be resolved. So before I get, before I get too much into that, I want to read this passage from the wiki, and it goes like this. Hegel understood the history of philosophy to be a trans-historical Socratic argument concerning the identity of the absolute. So what, is, what does he mean by the absolute? He's talking about, well, he's talking about God when he talks about the absolute. Whether you, whether you call it the absolute or the infinite or God or whatever you want, what we're talking about is the, the end-all, be-all, the first cause, the uncreated creator. Whatever it is that, ca- that, that is responsible for you and I and all of this, uh, whatever that is that we don't know, that we can't know, but we are always constantly seeking after, that's the absolute, the, just the bedrock of reality, whatever that is. And he's saying that the history of philosophy has been an argument back and forth between different philosophers, uh, between representatives of different ideas across time to try to figure out what the absolute actually is. And so this is like that dialectic that he was talking about. Instead of simplifying it like I did with the example of the Civil War where we have two sides, imagine there's all sorts of sides. And they're all fighting it out and trying to figure out who wins. And it's not always about one side winning. Sometimes it's about a synthesis. It's about picking up what works from here and what works from there and coming up with a new synthesis. Um, and, but Hegel was very preoccupied with this dialectic in terms of understanding God or the absolute. And the example Wiki gives is um, uh, talking about some of these ancient Greek philosophers. He says Parmenides, who we've talked about before, took pure being to be the absolute. Pure being. So that's, you could call it consciousness. It's what's immediately available to you. It's the here and now. It's, you know, um, it's the moment. And then there was a philosopher, um, Gorgias, who replaced um, pure being with pure nothingness. So the absolute is actually pure nothingness, whatever that means. And then Heraclitus comes around, and this is a guy that Hegel particularly liked, and he replaces both of those ideas, a pure being and pure nothingness, with a combination of the two. So it's not about being and, and not being. It's something that Heraclitus would call becoming. It's something like a combination of being and not being, this process that we call becoming. And you could just think about that with yourself. You know, Think about any moment of your life that you want to. When you were a kid, when you were adolescent, you know, when you were a young adult, you know, whatever it might be, pick a pick a person, pick a, pick an instant of you, and realize that in that instant, in that you know, in that one instant, you are that thing that you thought you were, and the next moment you were something else. You're always becoming something else. You're maturing. You're learning. You're making mistakes. You're failing. You're succeeding. You're growing old. You're you know you're always changing. You're always becoming, and this is the idea. There's a process that's, that's, 
some back and forth between being and not being, and we call that becoming. And that's our, the experience of ourselves, you know, in a weird way. It's interesting. And so this brings Hegel to this idea that he's going to talk about in, in, in the book about things in themselves. And this is an interesting, like, scientific idea because, because science has, you know, had a lot of success in doing exactly this. I mean, this is what the scientific, you know, uh, uh, enterprise is. It's to take an object and to figure out what it is all by itself, apart from the things that we attach to it, apart from all of our subjective things, you know, apart from our experience of it. What is it apart from our experience of it? This is that thing Kyle and I always talk about when we talk about our perceptions versus reality. It's like we don't exactly know with any certainty what it is behind our perceptions, behind our experiences that we're actually experiencing. All we have available to us is our experience of it. And it's not clear that our experience of the thing and the thing itself is the same. So what we want to know is, what is the thing in itself? So that's the objective reality. That's the thing that Kyle and I joke about being the, the Terminator 2 T-1000 liquid metal could be anything's potential substance or the ones and zeros behind the matrix, something like that. Something that the postmodernists, uh, Derrida, I believe, called the virtual no, no, it wasn't Derrida, it was Deleuze, called the virtual. Um, so things in, in themselves, this is what Hegel's interested in. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, read, I'll read this from Wiki here. He's talking about Hegel and Kant, both really important philosophers and associated. He says both of them, um, both of them believe that the concept of, of a thing in itself can be achieved by removing or abstracting everything in our experience of, of that particular object. So it's not, not like I look at a table and I say it has a certain shape, it has a certain color, it has a certain texture, it has a certain feel, it's made up of certain elementary particles. None of that stuff's important. It's not my experience of the object that's important. It's not the subjective thing that's important. It's what's there when I'm not looking. And that may seem silly to you. You may see. You may say it's a table when you're not looking, Chris. It's just the same, and that's fine and good. But some of the smartest scientists in the world disagree. You know, all of the all of the quantum physicists that came, you know, in the turn of the century, the Einsteins, the Neil, the Niels Bohr's, all of these people, um, you know, that came up with quantum physics. They're not so sure that when you're not looking at the thing, it's still a table. They're not so sure because there's this observer effect that they talk about in quantum physics. It's, it's about collapsing the wave function. You, a consciousness, it makes an observation, and that observation is somehow participating and making that thing real. So what does it mean to be real then? If it's not being observed, it's not real? Well, that's what quantum physics tells you. Niels Bohr says, everything you think of as real are made up of things that cannot be regarded as real. What? Yeah, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. What happens when we want to find the absolute? When we want to find the things in themselves? That's interesting. So, so if you strip away all of your subjective experience of a thing, according to Hegel and Kant, what you're left with is the thing in itself. 
And Hegel's going to talk about that as though the thing in itself is the absolute. It is something that I would call God. And I do. When we talk about the T-1000 substance, when we talk about pure potential, you know, an objective reality, I believe that is God. All right. Let me keep reading here. He, um, Wiki continues, says, if we, if we abstract thing from thing in itself, we get one of Hegel's standard phrases, in itself. And then he gives examples, Wiki gives examples that says, a child, in Hegel's example, is thus in itself, the adult it will become. Isn't that interesting? A child is in itself, the adult it will become. Well, yes, of course. But does anybody ever put it to you that way? It's something when, when Jordan Peterson talks about this sort of thing, he always says things like that the adult is folded up in the child, or that it, you know, it becomes unfolded over time, that it's somehow in the child, the potential that it will become, and that there's something true about that. And Wiki says to know what a child is means to know that it is, in some respects, a vacancy, which will only gain content after it has grown out of childhood. Interesting. And then, and then it goes on, it says, the thing in itself is knowable. According to Hegel, it is knowable. You can know something about the thing in itself, God, or objective reality. He says, it is the indeterminate, futural aspect of the thing we experience. It is what we will come to know. So just like the adult is something that you'll come to know from the child, it's this indeterminate, you're not quite sure what it's going to be, and futural aspect, something that's going to happen. It's going, it's a, it takes place in the future. It's a becoming. So the thing in itself is the potential for experience or knowledge. But, and what's interesting is it's sort of the same for any particular thing. You know, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference. Like, you know, if we if we're focusing on the potential of what will come and it's indeterminate, it doesn't have any form yet. So then, what a what a child will become and what a seed to a plant will become, that potential is kind of the same. Like, it's going to become something different for sure. That's going to happen. But while it's still in this unmanifested potential state. The substance of potential in both examples is not different. It's something that can become something. Yeah, they're going to become something different, but was that really important while they're in this state of potential? So that's another example, the idea of a seed. He said a seed is, is in itself of the plant, and a child is the in itself of the adult. Isn't that interesting? All right, so back to Heraclitus for a second. So Hegel really liked Heraclitus' take on things and considered him, his philosophy, to kind of be the beginning. And he says, um, according to Hegel, Heraclitus is, is one who first declared the nature of the infinite and first grasped nature as in itself infinite. That is, its essence as process. So this is the idea of becoming, like it's a process. And being infinite is a process. Okay, now I have to stop for a second because there's all sorts of bells ringing when I read that. 
that go back to my own mystic intuition, my own experience in the past of having these sort of mystical uh, experiences and the, the enlightenment that I talk about, um, kind of achieving from those sorts of things. I get this idea of a process too. It comes through like dynamite in the mystic experience. Um, and I've talked about this in lots of ways, and I don't want to be unnecessarily confusing, but it's the idea that, I'll put it this way, um, and we talked about this example before, so it's a good one. You might have a animal living in a particular landscape. You know, maybe it comes from somewhere else. It's new to the landscape. That the animal, like the bunny in the Arctic, is going to change the environment. I mentioned this before. It's it's going to dig burrows. It's going to eat certain types of vegetation. It's going to change, you know, all sorts of things. The way that soil drain, drains, what sorts of plants can grow there, what sorts of um, what sorts of um, um, herbivores and predators will will come as a consequence. You know, maybe it. Who knows? It could go on and on and on. The impact of of bunnies newly coming to this Arctic region, um, and then also what happens is that the the region itself impacts the bunny. The bunny maybe be. It used to be brown, and suddenly it, it becomes white to blend in better with the uh, uh, better with the uh, snow. Maybe it gets maybe it gets bigger or smaller so that it can better regulate its heat. I mean, who knows? Its ears get bigger or whatever. So you've got this back and forth where you have an animal living in an environment. The animal's changing the environment, and the environment is changing the animal. And it's this back and forth process between the two. It's this process of becoming. So this is the idea. Of, of thinking about God as a process and not as a man with a beard on a cloud. Think about God as something like a process. <laughs> That's amazing. And it comes from, it comes from pre-Socratic Greece, from Heraclitus. Amazing. All right. It says, um, for Hegel, Heraclitus' great achievements were to have understood the nature of the infinite, which for Hegel includes understanding the inherent contradictoriness and negativity of reality. And to have grasped that reality is becoming or process, and that being and nothingness are empty abstractions. That nothingness doesn't exactly exist. And maybe being isn't exactly real. What does that mean? Right, I'm going to keep reading. Um, according to Hegel, Heraclitus's obscurity, oh, and this is interesting, his obscurity comes from his grasping the ultimate philosophical truth and therefore express, expressing himself in a way that goes beyond common sense and is difficult to grasp by those who operate within common sense. So what he's, what he's saying here is that Hegel's saying, look, Heraclitus, if you read him, it's confusing and hard to understand. And that's not because what he's saying is nonsense. It's because what he's saying is so far beyond your limited understanding that it's going to sound like gibberish. That's something that I'm particularly sensitive to because it happens to me on this podcast all the time where I don't have the words to say what I want to say. And when I, when I come up with them, I feel like half the time Kyle's looking at me blank-faced and half you guys are like, what is this guy talking about? That's what I mean. And it's also funny because Hegel falls into the same category. It's almost like Hegel saying, look, Heraclitus is hard to read. And hard to understand because what he has to say is so far beyond basic understanding and basic truth that it's going to rock your whole world. It's going to be very difficult for you to wrap your head around. And kind of secretly, wink, wink, what Hegel's saying is 
you, you, you know, if you read me, that's that's this is exactly what you're gonna what you're gonna find out, and that's true. Reading Hegel is gonna come across like that, so that's why I've resisted it so long, and that's why I'm gonna do this slowly and gingerly with you. Partly, partly for you, but partly for me. And then the last thing here, he says, Hegel asserted that in Heraclitus, he had an, um, an antecedent for his logic. So he basically says Heraclitus was the beginning of where Hegel kind of picks up and takes off. Uh, he says, there is no proposition of Heraclitus, which I have not adopted in my logic. Hegel saying, I've adopted all of Heraclitus. So for Hegel, the inner movement of reality is the process of God thinking as manifested in the evolution of the universe, of nature, and thought. So that's quite the statement for Wiki to say about Hegel, but I really like this idea. For Hegel, the inner movement of reality, so whatever it is that's ticking behind the scenes is causing all this to happen, is the process of God thinking. And that's manifested in the evolution of the universe and nature. I'll put that a different way. God, whatever that means, is thinking. And those thoughts become the evolution of the universe and of nature. God's thinking. The Big Bang happens and all of the stuff that science has been piecing together ever since. That's all God thinking. And so there's a callback here. We're talking about God thinking to this dialectic process that Hegel talked about, like we talked about with the Civil War, let's say. And what he what he's sort of getting at here is that God thinking is this dialectic process. What does that mean? That means that the manifested material cosmos and all everything in it, you and I included, are the consequence of God going through this dialectic process of thinking. And you and I and everything that is in the cosmos is acting out this dialectic. It's acting out this this thought process that, that God is going through, something like that, so that you and I are sort of like, I don't want to say puppets, um, because we're going to talk about free will, and that's a whole interesting argument that, that plays into this. It's not like we're puppets. It's like we are the will of God in a body, acting out the process of his thinking, something like that. Now, why does it have to be that way? Why does God's thoughts have to be made materially manifest? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's related to the question, the Christian question. Why did God have to be embodied and come to earth as a human being? You know, that in the in the in the body in the, in the person of Jesus. Maybe something like that is, is is connected here. Then it goes on. Hegel argued that reality is being thought by God. Reality is being thought by God. Human thought is the image and fulfillment of God's thought. God can be understood by an analysis of thought and reality. So remember when we said uh, earlier, when Hegel said that the absolute is knowable. This is what he means. He says, God can be understood by analyzing thought and reality. Just as humans continually correct their conception of reality through a dialectic process, God becomes more fully manifested through the dialectic process of becoming. So it's interesting. It's not clear if, you know, this, this phrase at the end about God becomes more fully manifested. Like I, I, I get that idea, and I, I don't 
I don't want to say I disagree with the idea, but I, I think what I do want to say is that the process of becoming, it's never over. It's infinite. So to say God becomes f- more fully manifested, to me, I think is a wrong way of putting it. I think God becomes manifested. Period. That's what God is. God is the thing that becomes manifested. And it's always changing. That's, that process will never stop. It will never, ever stop. It's not as though God becomes more fully manifested. That doesn't mean anything. God is infinite. How can you, how can you be partly infinite or filled up, you know, your infinity's filled up? It doesn't make any sense. So that I'm going to take, some, I'm going to take some, uh, some issue with. All right, um, Hegel cites a number of fragments from Heraclitus. If you remember when we talked about ancient Greek philosophy, especially the pre-Socratic stuff, not a lot of it survives. It's very little. It's just fragments that we've managed to keep and quotes from, from people who wrote later on. Um, so Hegel actually does cite a lot of these fragments of Heraclitus. Um, one uh, in particular, he attributes great significance and it's a, a, a piece that Heraclitus said, it, it goes like this, being is not more than not being. Being is not more than non-being. So the implication here is that what? Well, Hegel's interpretation of that was something more like being and non-being are the same. And I bolded that because, again, going to my, to back to my own mystic intuition, and I have notes about this, I've said exactly the same thing before I ever read Heraclitus, and in, in exactly the same words. And that's, that's also striking. This idea of non-being, that's an interesting word. Like, how do you even come up with that word? You need to find something that means not exactly the opposite of being, you understand being to be reality, you know, material reality, and your experience of it. Non-being is, the, is a part of our experience that we're not experiencing. You know, it's a weird way of putting it. Non-being is not the opposite of being exactly. It's part of being, but it's just so different in every way that it's unknowable to us it's, it's in some way. It, it's analogous to the idea of the unconscious to me. Right, because we're conscious, and we know we're, there's more to our consciousness than just what we're aware of. There's something called the unconscious. You know, it's the place where our dreams come from. So that this is how I understand that, and and I use exactly the same words. So it just strikes me as really interesting. All right, and the last thing Wiki has to say on the matter is interesting. It says, whatever God thinks at any time is actual substance, and is identical to limited being but more remains in the substrate of non-being, which is identical to pure or unlimited thought. Okay, so that's a mouthful. So you remember when Hegel was saying that the material reality is manifest from God's thoughts, from God thinking? So here he says, whatever God thinks at any time is substance. It's an actual substance. It's material. That's why it becomes something physical like you and I in the cosmos. And he said, that thing, that substance, it's, it's limited being. It's something like the actual, you know, that's so what's been manifested in material reality. It's limited. It's not infinite. But God is. That's weird. 
And, and that's why he says, but more remains in the substrate of non-being. So you can imagine non-being as God and being as reality, material reality. And he's saying that there is more to God than just what's been made manifest. There's more to God than just material reality. Yes, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's again, analogous to the unconscious. Hegel says, when he tries to, tries to identify what that more is, he says it's identical to unlimited thought, pure or unlimited thought. And what is thought again? God's thought becomes material reality. So unlimited thought is something like potential, infinite potential, exactly the same language I use when trying to understand the nature of God. Very interesting. All right, so now it's time to put Wiki aside, and we're going to start getting into the phenomenology of spirit. Um, God willing, we'll, we'll have some greater understanding after this, and we'll be less confused than we are right now. Uh, let's try it. All right, first, uh, first sentence I want to read to you from phenomenology of spirit goes like this. Remember, we're talking, he's examining here consciousness and trying to understand it. And it goes like this. Self-consciousness exists in itself and for itself. That is to say, it is only by being acknowledged or recognized. All right, that's just one little sentence, and already it's packed full of potential. Let's say that. All right, what does this sound like to you? He says, self-consciousness exists in itself and for itself. So you can imagine yourself as a self-conscious creature. What does that mean? Okay, he says, that is to say, that's him saying, here, this here's what it means. That self-consciousness is only by being acknowledged or recognized. Okay, so imagine you're all by yourself. There's nobody else in existence, just you. There's a way... Now, how, do I, how do I want to put this? All right, let's say there's two people left on, on the earth, you and another person. Um, you look at that person, you observe them. They look at you, they observe you. And there's something about that, that acknowledging your existence, that recognizing your existence, is, it's, part of, it's part of existing in a, in, a, in a hard to define way. And it's like if you remove that second person and it's just you, there isn't, there's a way in which there's nobody there to see you, to acknowledge you. You know, you go back to the physics, uh, the, the physics um, talk about uh, collapsing the wave function. You know, you might, un you might understand that as that there's no other consciousness there observing you. So you don't exactly exist. You know, just like a quantum particle doesn't exist in any particular state until it's observed. That there's a way you could, that you can think about it like that. And what Hegel's saying is, is like even in the situation where you're the only person left on Earth... Is it true that nobody's watching? Is it true that nobody's acknowledging or recognizing you? And if you think about that for a second, you're like, well, yeah, I'm recognizing me. I'm still there. I can see that I'm here. I understand that. And that's when it starts to get weird because that's exactly right. It's like that story I tell about uh, the float tank, you know, sitting in the float tank and trying to imagine what it's like for nothing to exist but, 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 
me, you know, and, and without a body, just the consciousness, because I couldn't feel my body in the tank. And I was just struck with this experience that even with nothing, no sense experience and no signals coming in, you know, even there, I was still aware. I was kind of aware of nothing, but I was still aware. I was sort of aware of my own awareness. And so that's, I think, what Hegel's talking about here. He's like, if you're a self-conscious creature, even if you're the only thing that exists, there's still somebody recognizing you. It's you. And that's weird. Because, you're, because what it does is it makes you another person in a weird way. It makes you somebody looking at yourself from a third, as though you're a third party. Right? Because who's the person looking at you, acknowledging your existence? You are. That's weird. And this is what Hegel grasps a hold of. He says, The conception of its unity in its duplication, of infinitude realizing itself in self-consciousness. So again, another small sentence, packed full of dynamite, apparently. Um, the conception of its unity in its duplication. So what, what does he mean by that? He's talking about consciousness, recognizing itself, always being aware of itself. That's what it means to be self-conscious. And so what you end up having is consciousness recognizing consciousness. And it's not clear whether that consciousness is one or two. And that's why he's saying unity and duplication. The consciousness that you are and the consciousness that's recognizing that you are are kind of like two things and kind of like one thing. And it's really weird and hard to understand. And if nobody ever pointed that out to you, you may have never thought about it. So what I'm going to do, and I think Hegel is doing this, although he's not, it's not really clear. When we're talking about the absolute or the infinite, I take that to mean God. So when he's saying, when he's saying that the conception of its unity in its duplication, of infinitude realizing itself, what he means is, God realizing itself in self-consciousness. According to me, God is consciousness. So consciousness recognizing itself, that's self-consciousness. God recognizing himself, itself, however you want to put that. All right, next. He says, thus its moments must be on the one hand strictly kept apart in detailed distinctiveness, and on the other, not distinguished. So what does he mean by this? All right, he, when he says, thus, its moments, he's talking about self-consciousness. It's meaning that there's two of them here. There's one self-consciousness that is what you are, and there's another one that's recognizing you. So you've got these two self-consciousnesses, according to Hegel. And he says that they're moments, right? Like, like they're two distinct things on one hand, are strictly kept apart from the other. It's distinct. But on the other, it's not distinct. And he says, this double meaning lies in the nature of self-consciousness, of its being infinite, or directly the opposite of the determinateness in which it is fixed. All right, so it's really, really difficult to understand this, but the idea is that your consciousness within consciousness... So you're the conscious being existing within consciousness. That's why there's this other consciousness there that can observe you, because you're existing within it. You're all rolled up in it, like Jordan Peterson would say. You're the thing in itself, as Hegel would say. You're the seed of becoming. 
consciousness within consciousness, something like that. He goes on to say, self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. And I think maybe I should have made this the first, maybe I should have made made this the first quote. Self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. It has come outside itself. So this is just the description of the idea of you recognizing yourself, awareness of your awareness. He says, this has a double significance. First, it has lost its own self since it finds itself as an other being. Secondly, it does not regard the other as essentially real, but sees its own self in the other. So this is super, super interesting, and probably something you've never considered, but just try, just try to imagine the experience of, of self-consciousness, the experience of being yourself and, and having awareness of the thing that you are. What he's saying is that one of those versions of your consciousness, it, it loses itself when it recognizes itself in, in the other. So the thing that you are, when you recognize that your consciousness, you sort of put yourself into the, God, for lack of a, of a better word, you put yourself into the body of the thing being experienced. And then you put yourself in the body of the thing doing the experiencing. And both of them are you. It's amazing. So the thing that's, the thing that's self-conscious and the thing that's aware of it are, you, are both you and, and sort of not. And you find yourself moving back and forth between those two perspectives. And Hegel's putting that like, you're moving back and forth between these two consciousnesses that make up this wholeness, this thing that we call self-consciousness. And you're either the person the person doing the observing or the person being observed. It's amazing. And then he says that when you lose yourself, when you become the person being um, when you, when you become the person that's being observed, you kind of lose yourself from the observer's position, and you, and you go back into the object. You become sort of the object again. And so he says the other, that you don't regard that other version of you as real exactly. So if you're the observer, the observer's the real thing. And what's being observed is like, you know, fake. It's like a reflection or a representation of you. It's not real. But then you, when you put yourself into that, into that object, when you put yourself into the, you know, the thing that's being experienced, then suddenly the, the thing that's observing you is not real because now you're in the, in the, the object. Now, now you're the thing in the object. And whatever it is that's, that's, you know, the third party looking down at you, observing you, that part of your consciousness, you're not in it anymore. You've moved, you've moved your perspective into this other thing. It's really weird and hard to understand. But if you think about it, you, you, you will agree with Hegel. If you think about it for a little while, you will agree that is how it seems to you. All right, he goes on. He says, It must suspend the other independent being in order to thereby become certain of itself as a true being. It suspends its own self for, the, for this other is itself. Okay, all right, this is difficult. It's not as though... This going back and forth between the observer and the observed is something that you do intentionally, exactly. It's sort of like it happens all of the time. It's like a constant process happening all of the time. And the idea of, the idea of recognizing yourself in either of those states, 
is to suspend your being in the other state. And so what happens to the other state? Does it go away? As soon as you, as soon as you stop being the object, then you're the observer again, and it, it pop, poofs back, in, back into existence, and suddenly you're this higher, higher version. You know, it's a really weird and hard-to-describe experience being self-conscious. And when you start asking questions like this and trying to explain it like this, it just unravels into this mess. But you know what this reminds me of? The idea of suspending yourself is is moments in my life where I wasn't where I wasn't fully present. Like imagine a flow state, you know, like you're doing something artistic and you just you just disappear. Like there is no self and there's a moment that is of indeterminate length. You know, time doesn't exactly mean anything when you get into this flow state. My wife my wife experiences this when she runs. So some runners might understand what I mean. But doing something artistic or reading a book or something where you get so sucked into it that you're not there as a self anymore. You're a part of this other experience. And it's a really strange thing. But it also helps me to understand this idea of suspending my consciousness in one of those states because I can... Because I can recognize having having that happened before, and I always understood that to be like I was operating unconsciously, like I, like my consciousness sort of fell into this unconscious state, and that's what they call flow. You know, when you become very artistic, when nothing is effortful, when everything just flows out of you, that that sort of thing. Um, I've always connected that idea to unconsciousness. And again, that's something that I tie heavily into the idea of God. It's the other part of ourselves that we don't know. You know, you might call that the God part, but that's not exactly what I mean. I think the the idea of material reality and the God part together are really one thing. So it's not exactly the right way of formulating it. But again, this idea of a flow state or having no mind, if you know what I mean, that, that does help me understand the idea of of actually suspending my being, suspending my consciousness in one state and allowing it to become some other state. Okay, and then he goes on, he says, through suspension, it becomes one with itself again through the canceling of its otherness. So if I suspend my being the observer and I just become the observed, then my consciousness becomes one again. Now there was a way in which it was two you know, my self-consciousness is sort of like having two consciousnesses. But when you suspend one, they kind of collapse back into one thing. You've canceled the part of you that's other, and you've become yourself again. And it, then he goes on, he says, but gives otherness back again, because it, because it cancels its own being in the other, and thus lets the other again go free. So this is the idea that if I'm, if I'm the observed then the observer goes free. It's not, it's not part of me anymore exactly. And if I become the observer, then the observed goes free. That I'm looking at myself as, as, as though I'm someone else. It's not me anymore. And what does Hegel mean by go free? I mean, you understand that, that it doesn't seem to be you anymore. If I'm the observer, then what I'm looking at is not me. It's something other. But if I'm the thing that's being observed, then whatever it is observing me is other. That's something that I would call God. And, you know, what's more other than God? It's nothing like you. It's nothing like us, right? Maybe not. 
And this idea of Hegel saying, you, you let your other consciousness go free, and I just have to ask, go free where? It, it, you know, it seems like it fades back into the oneness. It collapses the wave function. It fades back into the unconscious, like an unconscious unity, you know, the collective unconscious, as Carl Jung would say. If that's not a description of God, I don't know what is. All right, Hegel says, The process of self-consciousness has in this manner been represented as the action of one alone. So what he means is if you're self-conscious, you imagine yourself to be the one that's self-conscious. The one that's self-conscious. He says, but this action on the part of the one has itself the double significance of being at once its own action and the action of the other as well. So what does that mean? That means if I'm conscious and I'm both the observed and the observer, I'm both, I'm both things, then if one does something, We've both done that thing. So the action of the observer is the action of the observed, and vice versa, that there's no difference there. That's interesting. It's weird, but it's interesting. There's also some implications about free will in here. And we've talked about this before. You know, We talk about this idea of self-consciousness um, being two, sort of two consciousnesses, if you will. I like to think of the one as God and the one as myself or material reality, you know, in a more abstract way. And so you can look at this as like if one consciousness is acting, that you sort of both have done that action. So what I'm asking here is if one of those consciousnesses is God and I'm going around acting, that's the action of God. Okay, And that has some implications for the philosophical question of free will. If, if what I'm doing is the action of God, is that a free act? It's really interesting and hard to say. And even if it isn't a free act, it's still the, it's still the fulfillment of the will of God. How is that not a free act? If any, if, if any hypothetical thing is free, isn't it God? Isn't it God? Come on. It's a weird, weird implication. All right, Hegel goes on. He says, the process then is the double process of both self-consciousnesses. Each sees the other do the same as itself. Action from one side only would be useless because what is to happen can only be brought about by means of both. So that is really weird. This is the idea that the, the consciousness that's the observer and the consciousness that's the observed are, in some, in some sense, one thing. So the action of one is the action of the other, and you can't have one act without the other. Right? They have, if, if they're going to act, they have to act together. And it's weird because I don't exactly understand, you know, what does that mean? It, you know, I get this image of myself looking into, into a mirror. And if I raise my hand, guess what? Mirror Chris raises his hand too. If I wink at him, that motherfucker winks right back. You know, it's like, yeah, my actions are the actions of the mirror version, for sure. So there's something like that that, that pops in my head. It also makes me think that Again, if one of these consciousnesses is God and one of them is me, that's how I look at this. 
it's like my will and God's will have to be in harmony. We have to act together. And I can't act from my end alone. And what's even weirder is God can't act from his end alone. That I require God and God requires me. And together we're self-conscious. We're nothing by ourselves. Something like that. And I think this is tied to something that I've talked about from Jordan Peterson before, where he says, um, he talks about how, how telling the truth is so important and how lying is so destructive. And the idea is that, you know, you can, you can convince yourself of your own lies and live in this false reality. And you might get along that way for a while, but eventually you're going to run against, run up against reality and it's going to slap you in the face. It's going to say, you know, you might have thought you were the smartest man on earth. You might have thought you were untouchable. You might have thought you can get away with whatever you want. But here comes the here comes the mighty hand of reality to to punch you in the in the in the gut, and um and 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 basically make you own up to the idea that you were relying on a bunch of nonsense. That reality will eventually come back and push back if you're lying. And I think there's something like that 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 rings here, that. Your will as a human being in the material world has to align with reality. And that's the only way you can make anything work. You can't just do whatever you want. You have to make, you have to have a harmony between your will and the limitations of reality. And that's something like harmonizing your consciousness and God consciousness. It's, you know, that's a poetic way of putting it, but it's apples and apples. And it seems to me like the effort that we have to go through to make something happen, anything happen that we want, it requires effort, it requires sacrifice, and it seems like maybe that is the sort of thing that's needed to harmonize yourself with God, you know, so you can actually get what you want. You've all seen that person trying and trying and trying and trying and never getting anywhere. And it's because they don't sacrifice the right things. They're not, they're not seeking after the right things. They're, do, they're doing everything but what they need to be doing. They're not harmonizing shit. All right, back to Hegel. He says, Consciousness and being outside itself is at the same time restrained within itself. It exists for itself. Okay, so that might be the most important sentence of the whole thing, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's describing how it feels to be self-conscious. It's, it's to be conscious outside of yourself and at the same time restrained within yourself, right? You're both the observer and the observed at the same time. And then, it say, and then he says it exists for itself. And this is the idea. It's like in order for me to be conscious, I have to be observed, and I do that myself. I'm the thing that observes my own being, my own existence. And it's, that somehow is what allows me to exist. It's, it's, it's a back and forth between consciousness. That's what we call self-consciousness. And what does that mean? It means consciousness exists for itself. It, it exists in itself, for itself. Like it's completely self-contained. And that's, that's a way of describing God. You know, the thing that, that came from nowhere and wasn't created, it's completely self-referential. It's completely self-contained. It is for itself. 
Amazing. There's also something in here about consciousness being restrained within itself. And the way I like to paint this up is imagine the material cosmos is consciousness. And you are obviously a conscious being existing in it. So there's a way in which you are consciousness within consciousness. Now, according to Hegel, consciousness is infinite. And I agree, because again, I'm going to say consciousness is God. I think Hegel would as well. And God is infinite, if nothing else, infinite, right? So what I'm, what I'm telling you here is that you are infinite somehow. You're consciousness, right? But you are restrained within the cosmos, which is also consciousness. So what you end up having here is the infinite, the thing we call God or consciousness, that is actually able to restrain the infinite. It's able to restrain itself by putting itself within itself. Okay? You're a conscious creature existing within consciousness. And that's what, that's what restrains you. And I guess what I mean by that is it's what makes you limited. Because otherwise you're infinite. You're like God. You're infinite. So being restrained within itself is something that makes, that makes consciousness determinate. It's what makes it limited. And that is what makes it real. That's what makes it exist materially as real, what we would call real. Now, I don't understand that well. That's just something that has been part of the mystic intuition, that God is infinite and that we are God and that the reason that we exist the way we do and not, and not as this abstract God is because we're, we're limited by our own self. We're restrained by our own infinity. And you would need something infinite to do that because we're both God. We're both consciousness, God and ourselves. So you've got this interesting back and forth between consciousness and itself. And this process, the thing Hegel calls becoming, that what that does is it, it seems to limit the infinity of God and make it something materially real and determinate. It seems to collapse the wave function, to put it in physics terms, quantum physics terms. All right. Hegel says, consciousness finds that it immediately is and is not another consciousness and has self-existence only in the self-existence of the other. So this is interesting. Consciousness only has existence in, in itself. Consciousness recognizes consciousness. That's the existence it has within itself. He goes on, he says, each is the mediating term to the other through which each mediates and unites itself with itself. And each is to itself and to the other an immediate self-existing reality, which exists only through this mediation. And that last bit says exactly what I said a minute ago, that reality exists, that the material cosmos exists in this manifested embodied state, only as a consequence of consciousness experiencing consciousness because they mediate each other they mediate the infinity that they are what does that mean it means they limit it they they contain it they they change it into something else that something else is material reality it's being that's what it is and what's so amazing about this is a call back to Jordan Peterson again and John Piaget who he studied 
who said that when he was studying ch- childhood development and you know how h- human beings develop, he noticed that a child's development of their own identity and the development of their um, their sort of picture of the world that those things are co-created. It's not like one comes and then the other comes. They happen simultaneously. So our understanding of ourselves as, an in, as a unique individual thing and our experience of the cosmos around us, that those things develop together. That's amazing. And Hegel's saying, uh, again, which exists only through this mediation, that reality exists only through that mediation. It's like a co-creation of God and the cosmos, of consciousness, God consciousness and consciousness like what we experience ourselves to be, that these things are co-created. Amazing. And Hegel, Hegel says they recognize themselves as mutually recognizing one another. And I, again, I just go back to the, the idea of me looking in a mirror. You know, I'm going to recognize my myself in the reflection, and there's a way in which the reflection recognizes me in, in, in reality, right? It's like, which one's real? Which one's real, me or the reflection? Can you say? See, there's a way in which... There's a way in which self-consciousness is a representation. It's representational. Just like we were talking about before, about the world being virtual or representational. That's what it's like. It's something like what the Bible says when it says we were made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means something like this, like it's representational in nature. That's interesting. It's a matrix shit, but it's interesting. And it reminds me of um, a discussion of matter and antimatter. Uh, if you guys are Dan Brown fans, you've probably seen that in fiction, but it's a real thing. I mean, the physicists believe that when the Big Bang happened, all this matter was created, but also antimatter was created. And it's basically all the same things that we're accustomed to learning about matter, but it's got like the opposite charge and the opposite characteristics. It's like the mirror image of matter. And if one of the pieces of matter should ever touch, or, or you might say experience, um, an element of antimatter, that they will annihilate and turn into energy. They just annihilate. And that's the word they use. They disappear. And that's interesting, because there's a law of conservation of energy that says that that doesn't happen. You can't annihilate anything, but there you have it. Matter and antimatter get together. The question is, where'd they go? Did they disappear? Did they go away? Or did they do something like reemerge into unconsciousness? Did they, did they reemerge in, in the mirror version? Something like that. You know, is there something more to consciousness that we don't have experience of directly or usually? Something that we would call the unconscious. And again, from, to my mind, from my perspective, taking the idea of consciousness and unconsciousness as a whole, that's the closest thing you're, you're going to get to my idea of God, my understanding of God. So then Hegel goes on, he says that consciousness and its other, so this is the, the, you know, the other version of itself that it recognizes, it says they are for each other ordinary objects. Okay, so if I'm the observer and I'm looking at the observed, even though both are me, I'm looking at something that seems like an object. 
Okay, and if it's able to look at me, it's looking at me like an object, not 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 as itself exactly. We're not understanding, we're not understanding ourselves to be identical with each other. We're 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 looking at each other like we're a third party. It's a weird thing. Self consciousness is a weird thing. And Hegel says they are forms of consciousness which have not yet accomplished for one another the process of absolute abstraction of being the bare negative fact of self-identical consciousness, or in other words, have not yet revealed themselves to each other as existing purely for themselves as self-consciousness. Each is indeed certain of its own self, but not of the other, and hence its own certainty of itself is still without truth. So this is strange. This is basically saying that it's possible for consciousness to recognize itself as an object, as distinct from itself, without ever realizing that it's actually identical to you. And that, and we're going to talk more about that, but it's like he calls that forms of consciousness that they haven't harmonized. You know, the, the way we were talking about before, um, we we're talking about harmonizing God's will with our own. Like when, when consciousness doesn't recognize its identity with with consciousness, that it becomes something like a like an object. And if it does at any point recognize its oneness with consciousness, that it somehow maybe ceases to be an object, becomes something else. Maybe it's again folds back into unconsciousness or uh, gets absorbed back into into God or something. I don't know what language you want to use. It, it's as though the other that other consciousness, that that's material reality, you know, God within God, consciousness within consciousness. And all the objects in material reality are also God. But in this example, maybe they're in a state of not knowing that they're God, you know? And that's what makes them exist in this unique way, in this differentiated way, maybe in this material way. And the implication beyond this is that all forms of consciousness, you know, material objects, have the potential of recognizing their godhood and in so doing ceasing to be material materially manifest so you might think of stories like the buddha reaching nirvana or enoch being taken to heaven or something like like maybe it's maybe that there's an end here where objects can become enlightened for lack of a better word uh, objects of all sorts you know you, you have to you almost have to have a panpsychic perspective panpsychist perspective. You, you have to think everything is fundamentally made of consciousness, which I do. But if you can go there, then this all makes sense. And, there, and it, it's sort of promising. You know, it's like, look, if everything is consciousness, if everything is made of God, and, and all these various objects that we see in material reality need to do is recognize that they're God, um, that, that there's some sort of a goal there that we, that we, can, we can strive for, for ourselves anyway. Um, we can talk more about that, but but let's 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 push on here. So, if recognizing your oneness is only possible by a mutual action of consciousness and its self-representation, I wonder how do you sync them up? And and is that related to the idea of of harmony and music and patterns that come up in terms of religious and mystic intuition? You know, there's always. Images like that and dreams and psychedelic experience that have to do with harmony and patterns, and matching patterns, you know, patterns within patterns, that kind of thing, like fractal geometry. 
Can one bring God's will in line with their own in order to make something impossible possible? I wonder. All right, so back to Heigl. He says, um, the, the process of recognizing your oneness with God, so the, that process, he said, it involves action on the part of the other and action on the part of itself. So both consciousnesses, remember, um, they both have to be acting. They have to be acting in accord, you know? Just like, you know, you look in the mirror and you raise your hand and, you're, and the mirror image raises its hand. Like, that has to happen. There has to be a harmony there where nothing happens. Um, so he says, uh, you know, that that process involves action for, from both, both ends. Um, he says, but in this there is implication that each risks its own life. And in doing, and, and, and it is solely by risking life that freedom is obtained. Only thus is it tried and proved that the essential nature of self-consciousness is a vanishing moment. So what does he mean by, what does he mean by this? There's an implication that each consciousness risks its own life if they try to identify themselves with, with, with the other. Right, so if if me as the observer and me as the observed tries to recognize ourselves as the same thing, that we risk death, and this is what Hegel was trying to explain in the beginning when he said that your consciousness sort of flows back and forth between you as the object and you as the observer, you as the observed and you as the observer. So if I push myself from the observer into the observed. I get into a flow state. I forget that I'm even myself. That in a, in a way I have destroyed the version of me that was watching the observer. I destroyed that that that's the god part and it's gone. How is it gone? It's gone because I've become part of it, right? When I get into that flow state, I'm god then. So there's a risk there's a risk of dying that keep that keeps for people from doing this. And I can't help but bring up that the psychedelic, you know, ego death experience or mystic experience is something that does exactly this. It causes somebody to face and experience a psychological death, a letting go of their identity and their consciousness. And what happens is a mystic, a mystic experience, actually. A mystic experience of becoming one with the universe, becoming one with God experience. That's what happens. And that's so interesting. This is, seems to be what Hegel is talking about. I can't imagine Hegel ever had a psychedelic experience, but maybe he did. Um, <laughs> so there's like this ultimate goal or this ultimate possibility that consciousness can recognize itself as God. And in so doing, free itself from, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the payoff is here, but what keeps you from, what keeps you from exploring that is a fear of death, a fear of losing yourself. And that's absolutely what the ego death experience is like. And anybody who's had that ego death experience, maybe not anybody, but anybody who's done it responsibly, um, they'll tell you it was one of the most beneficial experiences of their lives. Second only to the birth of their first child, something like that. All right, Hegel goes on. He says, each must aim at the death of the other as it risks its own life thereby. For the other's reality is presented as outside itself 
It must cancel that externality. They cancel themselves and are joined. Extreme seeking to have existence on their own account. But along with this, there vanishes the essential moment, that of breaking up into extremes with opposite characteristics. So what does this mean? So to be self-conscious is to simultaneously be yourself and another self. The self that knows that you are, right? And so that other self seems like it's outside of you. That's the part that I'm going to call God. It seems like it's outside of you. And what Hegel says, you have to cancel that externality. You have to bring it in, in line with your own identity. You have to absorb that yourself. And that when you do that, you become joined with God. He, the word he uses is sublated, but you become joined. Your consciousness becomes one. And that, my friends, is exactly what the ego death mystic experience is like. All right. He goes on, he says, The dissolution of that simple unity is the result of the first experience. Through this there is posited a pure self-consciousness, and a consciousness which is not purely for itself. Okay, so what he's saying here is, the moment you have any experience at all, it seems like it's an experience of something else. Right? I reach out and I touch something, it seems like I'm touching something that's not me. It's outside of myself. What Hegel's saying is that is an illusion. So the, the moment I have a, an experience at all, it presupposes that there is a consciousness, a pure consciousness, that's, that's not purely for itself. And a consciousness in the form and shape of thinghood. That's, that's the, the observed. That's consciousness as, as the observed as a thing, as an object. Now, consciousness as an object and consciousness as an observer, he says they are unlike and opposite. And their, ref their reflection into unity has not come to light. They stand as two opposed forms or modes of consciousness. The one is independent, the other dependent. The former is the master, that's what I'm going to call God. And the latter is the bondsman. That's what I'm going to call self. So again, the self-consciousness that you are is sort of broken up into two. Consciousness that's purely for itself and one that's more like an object. It's the observer and the observed. And he says that th that distinction between observer and observed only exists because they have not yet come to understand that they're the same. And so what, what, what is intended here is the idea that the, the things that you experience, material reality, your subjective reality, that that is God. And it, it exists like that for us because we haven't yet realized that we are the same thing, that we are not distinct. So this illusion of material reality, this illusion of independence and, and self and being, that all of that stuff exists only because we haven't recognized our oneness with consciousness, our oneness with God. The master is the distinction that Hegel makes. He says, We have thus here this moment of recognition, viz. that the other consciousness cancels itself as self-existent, and itself does what the first does to it. 
In the same way, we have the other moment, that this action on the part of the second is the action proper of the first. For what is done by the servant is properly an action on part of the master. Okay. Okay. So in, in a self-conscious scenario like Hegel's, Hegel's spelling out for us, the two consciousnesses, the observed and the observer, are master and servant. God and self. That's what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna call it. And he says, what is done by the servant, so what is done by you and me, is properly an action of the master, of God. Okay, so that that is what I mean when I say that this understanding, this sort of mystic understanding of, of everything being a unity, God being one in consciousness, that creates this really interesting free will um, wrinkle. You know, usually we talk about talk about free will in one of two ways. You know, either people have free will or that they're determined. You know, determinism is the opposite. Everything's just like a machine. It's going to go, it's going to do what it's going to do, and it can do nothing else. So there's no such thing as free will. And uh, other people that say, no, you know, every action is a free action, and maybe some some, uh, shades of gray in between. Hegel's taking this and tipping it entirely on its head. He's saying that the action and the will of you as a conscious person, of the servant, is the action of the master, is the action of God. And that's exactly the point I made earlier. You know, how, do you, how do you say, if you're God, does God have free will? What a weird question. And even if you imagine God as something that's fully you know, ordained. It's it's something something that's all spelled out. Maybe it's a process that's all spelled out. Um, you know, it's constructed in such a way that it has to happen this way. You know, and and it, because it's God, it's never it's never going to be any 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 different than that. It's it's this is the unchanging thing. Even in that situation, if the unchanging thing and the sort of predicted future just unfolds exactly as it as it you know was was always going to, and there was never any other way for it to be. That's still the will of God. The only free, you know, uh, I want to say the only free um, um, actor, but in this situation, it's the only thing that exists. God is the only thing that exists. So it really makes it difficult to even understand what free will means. All right, he goes on, he says, and all of this, the unessential consciousness, so that's the servant consciousness, is for the master the object which embodies the truth of his certainty of himself. He finds that his truth is rather the unessential consciousness and the action of that consciousness. So pump the brakes for a second. This is super interesting. I'll read it again. He says, In all of this, the unessential consciousness, which by this he means the servant, the object consciousness, he said it it is for the master, for God, the object which embodies the truth of, of this, his certainty of himself. So let me try to say this in a, different, in a different way. That you and me, the consciousness that we are, we are, the, we are something that's embodied, right? In material reality, we're embodied. And the, our existence is the truth of God's existence. He says, he, by he, means the master or God. God finds that his truth is, 
our consciousness embodied and the things that we do. That's something we call being, the material reality and our subjective experience of it. Amazing. Then he goes on, the truth of the independent consciousness, which this is the master or God, is accordingly the consciousness of the servant. Let me say that again. The consciousness of God is the consciousness of the servant, of you and I, of being. And the last quote here I want to bring to you today, because we're probably pushing at capacity, I would imagine. The position of the servant will, when completed, pass into the opposite of what it immediately is. Being a consciousness repressed within itself, it will enter into itself and change around into real and true independence. And what this is saying is that the servant consciousness becomes the God, becomes God consciousness, okay? So you and I have the ability to become God, whether that be through a mystic experience, an ego death experience, similar to the way Hegel spelled it out. But it's possible because we are, in fact, one thing, to be what we are, differentiated, limited material reality, and infinite, undifferentiated potential or God. And what comes to my mind here is, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, it's a vision that I had. It was, a, it was a vision I had in a mystic intuition. I've talked about it before. But it's the idea of trying to, I think, trying to understand the relationship between consciousness and unconsciousness which for the purposes of this conversation is another way of saying trying to understand material reality and god and how and how their what their relationship is you know and this and what happened in in this vision was i found myself standing in front of a uh it was like a river like a like a like a river it kind of seemed like the river sticks like i was like I was in the underworld, and I'm standing at this river, and if I touch the river, I'm going to die. Like, it seemed like that, you know, like a mythological sort of a scene. And I look across the river, and I see what looks to be my, myself, or a shadow or a reflection of myself. It seemed to look like I was looking at a mirror, like it was standing exactly on the opposite shore. It looked exactly like I, like I did, without any of the details, like I was looking at, you know, a mirror from a, a long distance, let's say. And then what happened was the river turned into a, like a little like a little creek, you know? It was no longer a, a big river that separated me from this other version of myself, but it was just a, you know, I could have stepped right over it. And it became clear to me that I was on the bank of consciousness. And what I was looking at was the bank of unconsciousness. And the thing that was that was staring at me was this sort of vaguely human-like form with no details. But I I recognized that it was myself. And I also recognized that it was God. Something like that. And I took this risk. You know, I reach out towards this other creature on the other bank, not knowing what will happen. And I was really scared, actually. I thought maybe if I stepped over into the bank of unconsciousness, that I, maybe I would never be able to come back. Maybe I would be lost there. Maybe I would, maybe I would die, you know? And when I took this brave step to reach out, and when I did, the shadow being on the other side, it reaches out too, right? Just like I'm looking in a mirror. I reach out, it reaches out. I grab a hold of it, and it grabs a hold of me. 
And then what happened was we just started spinning. Like I found myself on the unconscious bank and he was on the conscious bank and back and forth and back and forth. It was like we were spinning and I was finding myself on both the conscious and the unconscious side. And I wouldn't let go because I didn't want to find, I didn't want to find myself unable to get back, you know? So I just held on real tight to this unconscious creature. And that was it. That was, that was the vision. And I just think it's appropriate, having talked about Hegel and this idea of self-consciousness, that what we are is both God and, and man, you know, and both cases consciousness. You know, God I would, I would think of as you know, maybe something like unconsciousness, the part, that part of our consciousness that we don't have access to, you know, and then the part we do, this is our conscious part. And that experience was showing me that I was not distinct. I was the same. Um, the person on one bank and the person on the other were the same. And it was just like Hegel suggested that my experience of myself, it kept going back and forth. It went into the God part and back into the being part, into the God part, into the being part. And the conclusion was that there isn't a distinction, that there isn't a difference. The thing that God is, the thing that consciousness is, the thing that you and I are, is both. It's one thing. So I want to reread a line from Hegel here. Hegel said, The truth of the independent consciousness is accordingly the consciousness of the servant. And I'm going to put this in my words and say, The truth of God is accordingly the consciousness of and in material reality. That's being. And then for a more, uh, for a more um, unique quote, I'll tell you what I've told you before. We are the experience God is having. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.